So I had this whole speech prepared for you guys about how I was going to talk about how this is another example of the Voyager effect, in effect, uh, the one I mentioned briefly in the last episode. And then and it was partially inspired by my own memories of the episode and partially inspired by me actually going and doing all the behind-the-scenes stuff. I actually watch all the... and read. And, you know... I guess read <laughs> all the behind scenes stuff usually before I watch an episode so that, that's my prep work and then I watch the episode with analysis mode on and it's like um, and so I was fully prepared for this to be one another one of those bipolar it's good but it's terrible kind of episodes however while it is worth noting that certain aspects of this episode are pretty bad overall I don't think that really applies here this is another good example of we're going to do something ridiculous in order to accomplish something good the nebula, the threat, none of that is actually really the point of this episode. The point of this episode is seven of nine, or rather, seven. However, it's funny because it didn't start that way. <laughs> um, there's a gentleman who I want to name drop here, which nobody will know the name of. His name is James Swallow, and he's a British writer, cool guy, and... He had like this. This is just a cool story. I'm, this is really. This doesn't really add anything to the episode. I just wanted to share this with you because I think this is awesome. This is a gentleman who really liked Star Trek and had been trying for years to get a script into Star Trek. For those of you who don't know, at least back in the day, I don't know if this works this way anymore, but um, there were three methods of producing scripts, or at least baseline ideas, I should say, that went into an episode. Uh, usually, uh, sometimes the in-house writers would come up with a script. Sometimes someone else within the company would come up with a script, and and this is the most common, someone would sell scripts, and it was like very rough drafts of ideas, very rough usually, with only the basic frameworks of what they want to accomplish with the story, and they would try to pitch those to Paramount or to the studio or to whoever, and they would say, hey, you know, I want to have a story about, you know, the shining in space kind of a thing, and those would be then be purchased, picked up by one of the in-house writers, and that in-house writer would actually write the teleplay and script based on that idea, right? So James Swallow had been trying to sell a script in this manner to, to Star Trek since the next generation, since early the next generation, actually. He tried to sell it to DS9, he tried to sell it to Voyager. Never succeeded. And yet this episode finally, it went out there, and <laughs> the tale is funny because it sounds like they were going to reject it yet again until Berm, uh, Rick, Ber, uh, Berman Braga or Brandon, Brandon Braga, excuse me, get the right name here. Brandon Braga got a hold of it and said, this, this has some real potential. And Brandon Braga, who at this point in time was finally starting to exert some creative control over the franchise, said, you know what, let's actually do something with this. And so, you know, James Swallow got the call and said, hey, we're finally getting it. And he didn't even, he was so jazzed to finally be someone who was contributing to the history of Star Trek. And I mention that because it adds, it, it, it's almost a reminder of the sense of wonder and enjoyment that, some people, I feel, tend to forget exists in life in general, not just, not just in the olden days, but in general. The idea of actually contributing to Star Trek being this big moment and something that's, like, amazing is something that is kind of lacking in the modern era, and that's probably in no small, small, no small part due to the fact that Star Trek's kind of been dying lately. But, you know, it's like, what if you actually managed to have, write a Star Wars book? What if you worked on a Star Wars game? What if you did something for Doctor Who? You know, whatever the franchise is that you cared about, if you could go out there and do something with Kingdom Hearts or Final Fantasy or Zelda or whatever else, and you were a part of it, you helped contribute to the world that that is, that the franchise that that is, wouldn't that be awesome? So I just felt like sharing that. Uh, in fun little additional thing, they actually named this giant nebula the Swallow Nebula in honor of the gentleman who got, his, uh, who got the script in. 
Now, the script bounced all over the place uh, once it hit the internal writers and was originally actually going to be a Janeway episode because Jerry Taylor was writing it. If you've heard me talk about her and her um, <clears throat> fixation on Janeway, you know exactly why that is. However, it was very quickly determined by everyone else that, no, <laughs> it would be much better if this focused instead on Seven. And the shift of the episode shifted away, because the original thing was all about the, the threat and the doom and the isolation. And again, it was kind of like a Shining situation. But then it kind of shifted more and more into more of a character piece, and I feel like that's one of the reasons this episode succeeds so, so well. Excuse me. Because everything that doesn't have to do with the character drama is kind of silly, and in some cases, frankly, nonsensical. But this is something Voyager's done many times, and this is why I say this is not actually a bipolar episode. It is simply... A Voyager episode, or even a Star Trek episode, or even just an episode in general. You're going to do something ridiculous? Fine. Do something with it. Make something of it. And they did, and that's awesome. So, um, I also want to give huge, huge props to Jerry Ryan and Robert Picardo, both of whom literally sold this episode. Uh, good directing work, too, if I may. But let's go start going down the list here. I like the idea of Seven socializing. I'll talk a little bit more about socializing in a little bit, but I like the presentation of how there's a total lack of interest in the substance of socializing. She is looking at it as if it is an objective, where and, and that's obviously a flawed perspective because the objective of socializing is to socialize. Now, there are things you can get out of socializing, status, perception, communication, information, just, you know, there are ways to get objectives out of socializing, but the idea of just socializing is to socialize, right? And that's one of the things the doctor tries and fails to explain to her. It is, of course, a little bit pat in TV terms that she starts the episode desperately wanting to get away from people and ends it trying to get closer to them, but... I don't actually think that's bad because that is very in character for Seven. This is a woman who literally does not understand what she wants. No, no, no. This is a woman who does not understand the concept of wanting. Who still is trying to get used to the idea of having her own desires, preferences, needs, wants, etc. The eternal question of survival versus light rears its head one more time in this episode, and probably several times still until we finally have the payoff episode of that in its season six of all things. Um... But yeah, it's, 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 it's another thing where Seven just does not understand why am I doing this thing? Well, you're doing this to do it. Well, that's just pointless. But again, it's like the art, you know, the, the, the discussion of artwork back in uh, the Omega Directive. Artwork itself is completely meaningless from a perspective of a Borg. But artwork is one of the most fundamental bedrocks of society, of culture, of civilization. See where I'm going with this? Now, um... I mentioned that, in memory, this episode was bipolar, and it's almost entirely due to this scene. <sighs> There's a scene where they enter the nebula, and they're dumb. And they, I'm sorry. I have, I have given many credits and many props to these actors, and I think just about every actor on this show is a good actor, all the main actors. Uh, at the very least, good, and in some cases, exceptional. But what we see is, in the first act, is some bad acting. It's because they're all like, okay, try to overact as if you're getting really, really sick, and go! I feel like this is actually the fault of the director. Because the intent should be, you're burning alive from the inside out because you're being bathed with radiation. Try to act that way. But I, that's not how they act, and I feel like that's not what the director was getting across. And then instead, the director said, okay, try to act like you're really sick, and line! 
And so what we get is a terrible performance. I mean, Eric Kim's like, oh, and everyone's like, oh, and I was like, Captain. It's bad. And then it's stupid. This is why I mentioned earlier, because I actually went back and counted. Let's look at the chain of events, all right? Here's this massive nebula. Okay, let's enter it. All right, we've entered it. I'm detecting some unusual radiation, and oh, God, I'm sick. Okay, this is Star Trek. <laughs> that should have been sign 15 to turn around immediately. But no, 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 no. The thing that makes this funnier is because of the way that ships work in Star Trek, they kept going forward. So, like, here's the edge of the nebula, right? Here, here's my phone. Okay, so here's the edge of the nebula. And, like, Voyager's like, oh, and then they start getting sick. Why does Harry get sick first and by himself, by the way? Why does no one else get affected by that? That always bothered me. Anyways, so so they're like, oh, God, we're getting sick. Oh, no, we're getting sick. Oh, God, we're all sick. Cue, you know, cue the credits. Here. And it's still going. 30 seconds. 30 seconds pass, and then the order is given to turn around. They don't actually turn around then, by the way. They actually go for, like, another minute before Tuvok stumbles to the thing and turns them around. So, I, I just picture this. This is, this is so stupid. It's like I was talking about with the emergency procedures, how nobody on this, in, this episode, in this show knows how to deal with emergency situations quickly and immediately. They're just like, oh, God, what do we do? We feel so terrible for some unusual reason that might, probably has nothing to do with the radiation or the nebula we just entered. Nah, let's just keep going. Dur, 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 dur. <laughs> I laugh every time I see this scene, and it's dumb. Um, uh, I also, uh, one thing as an upside, the, the, the hugeness of the nebula is interesting to me. I don't think it's a negative. It's just interesting that they have this nebula that is gargantuan. A nebula that, well, we have a weird situation here because they talk about the ne taking a month to go through it and a year to go around it. Now, that's probably just a generalization, but even if we look at the math of that, that only adds up if they're going the same type of speed in both locations, right? Unless the nebula's really, really weird in, like, all three directions. Remember, this is space. And we see a picture of the damn thing. So the only logical conclusion here is that they're talking about going around it at warp. Now, I'm okay with this idea. I like the, the, the idea that the ship, that this nebula is so colossally huge, light years upon light years across, such that it would literally take a month or however, you know, 28 days, however long it actually takes, to cross it going straight through at warp. I like that idea. The reason I bring it up is we never see the ship at warp. It always looks like it's going at impulse. So if that's true, and I'm just bringing this up to be nitpicky admittedly, but there's a lot of nitpicky things in this episode, and it just kind of built up, which is why I'm bringing them all, or at least some of them up. So let's say they are actually going through the, through the nebula at impulse, okay? Let's just assume that for a moment. If they are... Why would it take a year to go around? They don't need to go impulse around the nebula. They could go warp. And they can go warp in three dimensions. So it should probably take something close to the lines of, I don't know, like a day to go around it if they're going through it. But, of course, it, if, if the reverse is true, if they actually were going through at warp, why does it never show them going through the nebula at warp? You see the problem here. There's a lot of niggling holes in the way this episode is presented, and... It did admittedly detract from it, but again, I'm willing to accept it, because they did something good with it, which I'm still building up to. Um, I like the idea of the quiet peril. It's a very hard thing for me to describe. It's something I've been, been in in my life many times. The idea is everything is totally normal, and nothing is wrong, except if one thing changes, 
everything is worse in every way. It's really hard to describe properly because when you're in genuine peril, when like there's a Tyrannosaurus Rex chasing you or when you're dangling over a cliff or when you're on fire, you know, there's something immediate. You have something to react to. You have something to work on. The quiet peril is something you can do nothing about other than trying to maintain the status quo as carefully and precisely as you can because if one thing messes up, it's over. This episode is the quiet peril in a nutshell. We have to cross this nebula. It's going to be like a month journey. We have to constantly be doing maintenance that's usually being done by about a hundred people. By two. Well, really, just the one. And that, um... That is, again, precarious situation. One of my favorite sections in this episode with regards to the quiet peril idea is much later in the episode, Seven mentions how it is taking nearly constant work and maintenance just to keep the ship running at all. Which I liked because it was a good way to emphasize the fact that, you know, one person cannot effectively run a ship. By the way, one person flying a ship for 30 months, or for 30 months, for 30, for 30 days? Now, okay, you could say that two people are running the ship. But you get my point. That's a little bit ludicrous, speaking as someone who knows just, just a little bit about ships, both science fiction and real life. But I'm willing to let it slide, because they did something with it. Question, though. Why is it, on a ship where being prepared should be the first mandate, that they, nobody actually thought about the problem this would have on the bio, you know, the, the, the bio gel packs in advance, since this radiation affects biological things, and, you know, I'm just saying, you know, maybe maybe this should have been something that they should have looked into in advance, but nobody even mentions it, so all of a sudden, oh my god, it's affecting the sensors, becomes a thing in midway. Eh. <laughs> um, I do like the hesitation of putting Seven in charge of this entire situation, because it shows, uh, I, I mean, on the one hand, you have no choice and you know that, but that doesn't make it an easy decision to do, does it? I mean, think of the history they have with this person. It's, she's only been on the show for a season. As it, not even a full season, although we're splitting hairs at that point. Because, um, you know, next episode it will be a season. And she's, on many times, not only butted heads with the crew, actively refused to obey orders, and of course, in some cases, has literally burst her way out of the shuttle bay. Because, you know, I remember that episode. Lots of people remember that episode. So it's very understandable that they were very hesitant to put the lives and fates of every single person on the crew, which I'll remind you includes several children. Uh, actually, I guess it's only one child at this point in time, isn't it? My bad. Anyways, in the hands of someone who is, realistically and militarily speaking, unreliable. I also want to add my own personal horror at the situation. The idea of being in that kind of situation is beyond horrifying to me. It's the absolute expression of powerlessness. You go to sleep and you wake up, right? If everything goes properly. But if one of things hadn't gone properly, Seven barely got them across the line there. Really, she did. How horrible of a thought it is that you go to sleep one night and that's it. You never get up again because something went wrong on day 37 or day 18 or whatever. And there was nothing you could ever even do about it. You wouldn't even know about it. And that thought is horrifying to me. I'm almost... Uh, 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 I'm almost just discouraged that they didn't show more of the nightmare that that kind of a concept is. Even ignoring 7 of 9 into the equation. Just the fact of, okay, get in this thing, and if all goes well, you'll wake up. What if all of that doesn't well? Then you'll never wake up. You know, it's... Oh. Um... 
I, also, should I even bring up the fact that they managed to make like a hundred plus, however however big the crew is at this point in time, uh, stasis pods out of thin air, and the space to carry them? No, no, okay, didn't think so. Let's just move on from that. Now, let's talk about the isolation thing. One of the things they do really well with the directing, and this is weird because the director was so bad earlier, is they showcase the idea of isolation visually and audibly. There's scenes where you see, they, they have big wide angles. Most of the set is visible. And you can see there's no one there. Nothing really active, nothing really going on, just an empty room. And you get that feeling, that vibe of emptiness. As Seven just walks through, silently going through, they actually added new music for these scenes for one of the first times in Voyager history with this whole violin piece trying to emphasize just how quietly empty this entire sequence was. It was very well done. And the funny thing is, it's all indicative of Seven's personality. As indeed everything is, basically from the moment they go into the stasis chamber till the very end, is all about Seven. This is what I've been building up to. But before I go into that, I want to talk about one other thing. The Twilight Zone. The episode, Where Is Everybody? I've always really liked that episode. I've always been of the opinion that there are two kinds of Twilight Zone episodes. Really, really good. And really, really bad. And, and basically nothing in between. It's my same opinion I have about the original Star Trek series, for example. But Where Is Everybody is one I put in the really, really good. It is a very particular form of incredibly creepy. And when the reveal finally hits, it's just it's, it's almost amazing in how mundane it is. I don't want to spoil too much, but I'm about to because I have no choice to talk about it. The whole point was this was a guy. Not a former Borg. Just a guy, probably military, who um, who was just in an isolation booth for however long. Uh, they say, I forget how much, but it was a long time. But even that wasn't even a month. This was less than a month, we're talking. And this man lost so much of his capability to function that he literally fantasized an entire fantasy life, fantasy world, fully hallucinated, audibly, visually, everything. He completely flipped. And he was just a guy. Now you're like, well, that's the Twilight Zone. Yeah, but as we've seen in real life, that's pretty much what happens. In fact, that's almost a documentary in terms of how that will happen in real life. I'm not kidding. Human beings do not handle isolation well. We never have. You, you, a lot of people want to be alone more in their lives. And that's understandable. We're very crowded in our lives. But I guarantee you, after the first week, or month, or year of living on your own. And that's just partial isolation, because you still go out and interact with people. That gets to people. Now imagine a few days of total isolation. No interaction from with anyone else, period. Now push that days to weeks. Now push it to a month. You see where I'm going with this here. One of my biggest regrets of this episode is they bothered to try and technobabble why Seven is hallucinating when they don't need it. A human being, a completely normal, adjusted, ordinary human being would also be hallucinating his balls off in, this, in these circumstances. Of course Seven is going to. This is a woman who went from being accustomed to the cacophony of the collective and then had to adjust herself down to the relative silence of the crew. 
And th there's one thing that's been true in her character arc too. Well, okay, there's been several things. But one thing relative to this that's been true in her character arc this entire time is she has actively been trying to get along with the crew. She's actively been trying to react to them and respond to their attempts to reach her and reaching out to them in her own usual way. Because she wants to be part of that group. She does not want to be alone. And that's very understandable. So while the episode starts with her disgusted at the idea of socializing because it serves no purpose, what we see in that and the beginnings of the second act is that she draws some of her own strength from her negative interactions with other people. It is very likely one of the reasons she has been so obstinate and so argumentative is because that is one of the ways she uses to adapt to her new lifestyle. She argues with the doctor, actively talks about not interacting with him, and yet when he vanishes for good, she is terrified at his loss. And you can see clearly on her face as she's interacting with him in that final scene before he goes offline, she never really hated him or wanted him gone. Not really. And it's all in a quiet subtlety. There's this one line the doctor says which really fleshes it out perfectly. The doctor says... I am complaining because it's comforting. Yeah, you see that? Because then Seven does the same damn thing. She complains, she talks back, she talks about how this is pointless and stupid, and that draws comfort into her. Comforts her in her knowledge that, even though she is in her own mind alone, she is still her, and therefore you know, it, it helps her to adapt, it helps her to respond. And then he's gone. When faced with the reality of true solitude, Seven snaps. And of course she does. Again, a person who is not a former Borg would snap. A former Borg who is still trying to adapt to being on her own? That's insane. Remember, this woman has had about a year, barely, of experience not being a Borg. And that's it. Period. One year of experience. That's all. Now, I want to talk about a couple other things. This, this, this is the meat of the episode. It's all about Seven and Nine. Or, excuse me, Seven. I keep wanting to say her full name as an honorer, honorific, which is what I usually do. Uh, and then I keep realizing that Seven is her full name by my own rules, so forgive me. I keep slipping up on that. A um, couple more notes. I like how she uses the holodeck in order to help her solve the war problem. And you might be like, well, why? Well, because it is actually her working through the rules, really. She wants assistance on fixing the problem. The holodeck computer is the computer. So she is basically querying the computer through the interaction of the holodeck characters in order to help her fix the warp time. And I thought that was both clever and very amusing. Now, second thought, socializing. Now let me make this absolutely clear. For a sentient being, it is my opinion that socializing is mandatory. I have said many times that a child will learn more on the recess playground than they will in the classroom because of the social interactions with the other kids their age. You react, you, you do something and I react to you and you react to my reaction and I learn based on your learning of my learning. It's a loop. Social interaction is a loop. And it's how we learn, how we grow, how we adapt, how we change, how we move, how we interact. It affects so much of our lives as human beings. That being said, I've also said that there's nothing wrong with being introverted. But it is worth noting an introvert is not someone who doesn't want friends. 
An introvert is not someone who wants to eschew all social interactions. Most introverts I've known, real introverts in real life, usually have two or three friends that they're very close friends with, and that's it. And they're, they're shy or quiet or don't interact with other people because they're introverted. Now, I have, been, I have been honored to be one of these friends in several of these occasions uh, with regards to these introverted people, and I think that's awesome. But again, the key distinction is they're still socializing. They still get social interaction, either at the workplace or out and about, because there's still social interaction even if you're not really participating, and, as I already mentioned, with those individuals. There's nothing wrong with that. But I mention this because Seven is not an introvert. I've heard this before. Seven is absolutely not an introvert. Quite the contrary. Seven is actually very much an extrovert. She's very forceful, very presentable. She very much wants to push herself out and interact with others. She just doesn't know how to go about accomplishing the thing that she's not even sure she wants to do. Again, year old, remember? Um, now, one other thing that is really, really, really good is the introduction of the alien in this episode. He's a great red herring. Forgive me for spoiling this for people who haven't watched this. I, I recommend people watch the episode and then watch my things in general. That's going to be true with Babylon 5, too, uh, which may have started by the time you see this. We'll see. I haven't started it yet by my perspective. Here's hoping. Um, it depends on if I get uh, my schedule in line. But anyways, he's a great red herring because the way he presents himself on first viewing, and this makes this episode really good on a second viewing, first viewing he's this creepy... You know, manipulative, almost sadistic, almost seductive. You know, I'm, I'm trying to be horrible kind of a person. And yet on second viewing, he is absolutely none of those things. Listen to the words he says. Listen to how he says them. He is literally an embodiment of Seven's lack of understanding of other people. The way he talks, the way he interacts, his whole espoused goal of, I want to be the first one to cross it, and I want to see what's on the other side just to see it which Seven herself rejects as ridiculous. We would not be crossing it if we didn't have to, she says. Because the very thought of doing something like that is stupid. And yet she knows humans do that all the time, doesn't she? Everything he says is from her own mind, because he never existed, remember that. And so everything he says is her own mind explaining her perspectives on things, her perspectives on them, and her perspectives on herself. It's really, really telling on her character and the way she views the crew. But the one really interesting thing is this gets taken up to the next level when she starts hallucinating about the rest of the members of the crew and the idea that she does not care about the rest of the crew. Janeway earlier in this episode makes a point that she has a gut feeling, a faith in Seven, that Seven wants to do right by them that Seven has a loyalty to the crew. Now we, the viewers, the audience, have seen this many times, but most of those things have been things where Seven hasn't actually been in the presence of other characters to express that, or it's only been one or two characters. I like that idea because this episode really drives home the point that Seven does genuinely care. She may not even understand what that word means, but the objective of the positive outcome of the crew of her ship is something she considers a mission objective. Or, to put it in slightly simpler terms, she cares about her crew. And I like that. Because it makes sense for two big reasons. Reason one. Even if the crew was just a bunch of bastards, it's still possible this would happen because they're her only option. 
What's her other option? Go back to the collective? It's very clear, and this episode makes this clear too, that the idea of going back to the collective is horrible to Seven. She does not want to lose whom she is. Not the human, the individual. So her only other option is nothing. So the idea of her being stuck on this crew, she would naturally grow to have an interest in their interest and in their well-being and all that fun stuff. Again, even if they were being bastards or, or destructive or obstinate or whatever towards her. But what have I been mentioning all these episodes? Yes, Taurus has been kind of bastardy towards her several times, and Harry was once when he was supposed to be Taurus. I talked about that before. But that's it, really. Tom has been reaching out to her. Harry's been reaching out to her. The doctor's been reaching out to her. Tuvok has been reaching out to her. Um, even Chakotay has been reaching out to her. And, of course, Janeway, the mother figure. All of these members of the crew have been trying to reach her, reaching out the hand to the person who doesn't understand what an outreached hand means. And I feel like that's... And this is the second reason. This has had an impact on her. They are her new collective in terms she can understand... And they have demonstrated that her well-being is important to them. Several times, actually. The Voyager crew has actually gone to bat for Seven twice in, in a major way. And again, this is just in Season 4. That has an impact on someone. Especially someone who thinks in such blunt and survivalist terms most of the time. So, yeah, I think it's actually really great that Seven went to such extensive means and pushed herself so hard to save the crew, even while a part of her mind in the back there is saying, why do you care about these people? And I don't think it's, 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 a, it's a situation where she's not sure or she's uncertain about her own feelings. I think it's the fact that she doesn't understand her own feelings. She doesn't fully comprehend why this crew matters to her or why she matters to them. I have a couple more notes here. Um, uh, actually, I only have two more notes. Sorry. <laughs> I, look at this. I'm using my old notepad like a plebeian. I need to buy new notepads, but I'm kind of broke right now after having to repair the computer. That, don't donate, please. <laughs> um, so, uh, the next note is uh, there's actually uh, almost a throwaway line in this episode, which will be used to immense effect in Season 6 in the final what I believe to be the culmination of Seven's story arc. Um, I forget the name of the episode, but we'll get there eventually. Uh, she mentions how she was disconnected from the Collective for a couple of hours. I believe it's literally two hours. And she was just... She could not deal with it. She was completely overwhelmed by it. And it's almost a throwaway line. But not only is it important for her character development, but again, will pay off when we get to that episode where we find out what happened during those few hours. Final note. She goes to socialize with the actual crew. Not a, not a holodeck recreation, not her own hallucinations. She sits down with Taurus, Tom, and Harry. And I really, really like that both Tom and Harry went way out of their way to try and... In social circles, there's, there's, a ter there's probably a term for this, and I don't know it, but it's basically... Uh, laying out something for someone else to join in. In other words, you are making the effort to include someone in a social interaction. You know what, you know what I'm talking about. I, 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 don't, I don't know what the proper term is for that, but you are actually saying something that you know that person can talk about or has a perspective on or has information on or is interested in, and you lay it out there so they can then pick it up and interact. And that helps bring them into the group so that all of us can now interact right there. 
It's an invitation kind of a thing, right? And Tom and Harry both go way out of their way to, to put down that invitation and say, yes, here, you know, how did how was the thing? We heard you had to deal with the doctor. And, they, and Tom, of course, does that lightly joking tone he does to help put her at ease and to help disarm the situation. It was very well done. And again, shows what I just talked about. They care about her. And her body language as she sits down, still kind of clenched. The desire to not be alone adamantly expressed in everything that she's saying and doing. It's hard not to sympathize. That's all I got for this one. Next, we hit the end of season four. Hope and fear. <laughs> Another seven episode. Kind of. We'll get to it. I'll see you around, guys. She's already killed millions. Would a few more matter? Computer, divert power from stasis units one through ten and... Reroute to the propulsion systems. Engines are back online. Resume course. Look at that, she did it. But those people she disconnected are going to die. I win. I knew she didn't care about them. Come to watch them die. Warning. Power to stasis units has failed. Computer, how long to complete passage through the nebula? Eleven minutes. They won't last that long. What do you do now, Seven? It's all up to you. Computer, cut life support to all decks and reroute available power to the stasis units. That will keep them alive. But what about you? No oxygen? No heat? Goodbye, Seven. I am seven of nine. I am alone, but I will adapt. <laughs>